Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to John chapter 8. We'll uh, pick up with verse 13 and go through verse 20 this morning. Hey, can I, can I just like be honest for a minute? This was really not fun this week. I mean, last week we looked at verse 12, right? And I spent all that time with the joy of discovery of everything around what it means for Jesus to say, I am the light of the world. And then to grasp the realities and the, the hugeness of what it means for him to have said that in that moment during the Feast of Tabernacles and what it means for us today and just, you know, mouth opening, gaped open like, wow, this is unbelievable. And to turn around on Monday and have to get into a fight with him and the Pharisees. Like, really? I want to enjoy this part about I am the light of the world. I don't want to get into a fight with you and the Pharisees. Can't y'all go do that without me? But the answer is no, because that's the next set of verses and we have to walk through them. And this starts with verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, actually, I'm going to back up and start with verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, My testimony is true, for I know where I come from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, Where is your Father? And Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. And these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not come. Let's pray. O oh Lord, I ask that during this um, time, as we look into these verses, these words of yours that you have spoken to these men and the way they have responded to you, Lord, we ask that you would just open up our hearts, open up our eyes and our ears and our minds to be able to see and hear and understand what you are saying and why you are saying it, to understand who you are more richly and fully, and to walk in the glory of your beauty and majesty as our Savior. And Lord, I ask that you would just use my mouth to speak your truth and let every word that I say come from you and not from any place else. And we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus very quickly brings up this question about where he is from. 
there in verses 13 and 14, right? And the Pharisees, they make this immediate objection to Jesus' statement that I am the light of the world and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I mean, they jump on it with both feet just right away. And their objection to Jesus, it's important to grasp this, this, their objection to Jesus is not just him claiming that I am light, but they are objecting to everything he has said throughout this entire section of the four-day period of the Feast of Tabernacles, including the part about him being the source of living water earlier in chapter 7. They're objecting to all of it. And what is their objection? You are bearing witness about yourself, therefore your testimony is invalid. What? Wait a minute. How is it that if I say who I am, that somehow that's an irrelevant, invalid testimony because I'm saying who I am? Well, it's easy to see that they're appealing to the law that requires two witnesses because Jesus references that later. But they're really objecting to more than just he's a single witness by himself, therefore his testimony is incomplete and invalid. It's much deeper than that. They often rejected the testimony of the person as sufficient to be the one of the required witnesses. So who are you? Well, I'm this person. Okay, but your testimony is not valid. Can you give me two other people that can verify you or who you say you are? What? I just said I'm so-and-so. Doesn't that count at least as one of the witnesses? No, it doesn't. The Pharisees had produced this crazy pharisaical law over the centuries to completely turn the two witness requirement from the law of Moses almost on its head to say that you are no longer a valid witness for yourself. It has to be two other people to meet the two witness requirement. You can't speak for yourself. Okay, but aren't they condemning Jesus for who he says he is? But that's not good enough as one of the witnesses for who he is. But it's good enough to condemn him for who he says he is. What? Is this one of these games where you get to make up the rules as we go? It almost feels like that as the conflict with the Pharisees progresses. And Jesus' response is more than just trying to correct a rabbinical error from the Talmud over the centuries. He's more than just doing that. Jesus' response here, he's making a statement about who he is and who they are in his response. His response shows that he will not be judged by their Pharisee-made law. In essence, he's saying to them, you will not have authority over me. In fact, by the time we get to the end of this, he's turned the tables and I have authority over you. See, Jesus' response here when he says, I bear witness about myself, sounds like it's almost in conflict with something he said earlier in John chapter 5 because previously Jesus had said he does not bear witness of himself, but then he goes on to produce a list of witnesses to his sonship. 
from John chapter 5. I'll just read that to you very quickly. Well, I won't read it quickly because i got to read 10 verses. But from John chapter 5, starting in verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that that testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, referring to John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, John the Baptist, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works of the Father he has given me to accomplish the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe in the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. Here, Jesus lists out that John the Baptist has been a witness to who he is. His works that he's accomplished, which include some pretty amazing works, like feeding 5,000 people from just five loaves and two little fishies, to all the other amazing things he's doing and will do throughout the Gospel of John. All these works bear witness to who he is. But the ultimate, and even the scriptures themselves, the word of God itself, the Old Testament bears witness to who he is. But ultimately, the supreme final witness for who Jesus is is his Father in heaven himself. And Jesus is telling these Pharisees right now in this moment, irregardless of chapter 5 where he lists all this list of witnesses I am testifying to myself and my testimony is good enough for you I testify about myself and that's enough deal with it but oh by the way just so we're clear my father also is giving testimony to me Jesus knows who he is And he says very clearly that he knows where he comes from. He knows his origins. And knowing his origins is important. But Jesus knowing his identity is far more important than knowing his origins. And brothers and sisters, that's true for us. Knowing where you're from is important. But it's not nearly as important as knowing who you are. Abraham Lincoln was one time asked about his grandfather, who was a very well-known and respected man in the time. And his response to the questioner was, I'm not nearly as concerned about who my grandfather was as I am about who his grandson becomes. That's the essence of this understanding your identity and it being more important than your origins. And the statement of the Pharisees about not knowing where Jesus is from is one of these ironic twists from just earlier, right? At the very end of chapter 7, they lamented that Jesus couldn't genuinely be anybody real. He couldn't genuinely even be a real prophet because he's from Galilee and nothing good comes from Galilee. And then here we are just less than, I mean, hours later, they're saying, well, where are you from? We don't know where you're from. 
this ironic twist that they claim to know who Jesus is, but they don't know who he is because they think he's from Galilee. Do you get this irony? He is from the Father. He is from heaven above, and they think he's from stinking Galilee. They just couldn't see it. And then Jesus gets to this whole question of judging there in verses 15 and 16 where he actually starts to turn the tables on the Pharisees and pointing out that they judge by their own standards, not God's, right? They're showing up to confront Jesus because, hey, the law says you can't do this. And he starts to flip the tables on them and says, hey, wait a second, that's your law, not God's law. You're the ones not judging by God's law. They were using their own standards. I'd mentioned earlier that in that day there was many rabbinical teachings about the oral tradition of adding the requirements of the witnesses that saying the individual could not be one of their own witnesses. Well, they even took it like you would think that would be enough, right? Like, really? Come on. That's, you're going to go further than that? Oh, absolutely. They couldn't help themselves. They even went further to the point in years before Jesus arrives on the scene saying that the father himself could not be a legitimate witness in one of the two witnesses. So it starts out, the law of Moses says, for a thing to be established, you must have two witnesses. They decide to add to it and say that you, the individual, cannot be a witness for yourself. But you can be condemned for by your own words. You can be a witness against yourself, but you can't be a witness for yourself. What? How's that work? Then, that wasn't good enough. They had to go additionally and add to it that your father cannot be one of the required witnesses. It has to be someone outside your family. What? Where did that come from? You can almost feel, I mean, if you put yourself in their sandals, you can almost feel the the, the frustration of the individuals brought before the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin What kind of kangaroo court is this? You're making things up as you go along just to get what you want. But they weren't prepared for a confrontation with Jesus. It isn't just enough for Jesus to dismiss them and tell them, I don't care, you're not going to have authority over me. If he did that, that would have been enough. That's all he had to do. But Jesus goes a step further and corrects their error of adding to what God has said with their own ideas. Jesus judges upon the witness of himself and the Father. That's his basis for judgment. And that's all the judgment basis he needs. He's setting right. He's returning back to what was supposed to be from what they had turned it into. And I and the Father, there at the end, in verse 16, where he says, Even if you do not judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. This is one of those moments, like we saw last week in verse 12, where John writing to a group of people that understand what's going on and can catch allusions and references to something that we don't catch today because we don't know what this is like. But during the Feast of Tabernacles, Every day the priest would march around the altar singing Psalm 118, verse 25. They would say, which reads, O Lord, 
But they wouldn't say that because they were afraid to say the God's name. And so instead, because they were afraid to speak his name, they would say, I and he, from verse 25 in Psalm 118, as they marched around the altar, singing that psalm. And Jesus is alluding to that very idea that they had just seen for seven days in a row. For seven days in a row, they had all watched the priest march around the altar, singing Psalm 118, and when he gets to verse 25, saying, I and he. And now Jesus is referencing that by saying, I and the Father. He's pointing out, if you do that, think about this for a second, brothers and sisters. You allude to that, you are saying that I and he, and the he and the I and he is my Father. Well, the he is in place of the name of God, Yahweh. So you are saying, Jesus, that Yahweh is your father. That's exactly what he's trying to say. He's not hiding it. And all the modern scholars who try to pretend that Jesus never claimed to be God are just ignoring this raw Jewish historical festival evidence to make their claims. And then Jesus points out that he and his father's testimony is all that's necessary. He's resetting the requirements of the two witnesses, as I'd mentioned earlier, that even under their own rules, he still fits the requirements of having two witnesses to testify to and justify his claim of who he is as the light of the world and the source of living water. And that Jesus' Father bears witness about his personhood and identity along with Jesus himself. Jesus' identity is given to him by the Father and the Father himself testifies who Jesus is. And you would think that just these 13 through 18 would have been like the crescendo, the big, the big thing here about this passage. And for most of us, especially here today, 2,000 years later, it really is kind of the big thing. But in actuality, in this moment, in this individual moment of the confrontation with the Pharisees, the real big crescendo moment is verses 19 and 20. Because now we get to the crux of the conflict. The real problem the Pharisees have is knowing God. That's their real problem. It's the source of their conflict with Jesus, is they don't know God. Despite their earlier claim of knowing who Jesus is and where he is from, they now admit they don't by asking, where is your father? And oh, by the way, just so in case you didn't catch it, they are saying your father's bears witness of who you are. Is that what you're telling us, Jesus? Well, then make your father appear before us. Make him show up right here. And we'll believe. They are daring him to make the father appear. Now, clearly, they don't realize who Jesus' father is. Because if you read back through the Old Testament, when God shows his face, people get really, 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 really afraid. 
right? Does anybody remember what Daniel did? And that's not even, we're not even sure that was actually God himself who shows up in Daniel's face. And he falls face down and can't eat and sleep for three days. What does Moses do when he sees the face of God? Well, he shines real bright for a few days afterwards. But before that, he kind of freaks out. What does Isaiah do when he sees God? Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I am undone. Everybody freaks out when God shows up and they see his face. And they're saying in this moment, make your father show up and we'll believe you. Oh, you are such idiots. You have no idea how badly this is going to go for you if God, my father, shows up right now in this moment. I mean, you're going to fall down on your faces and beg him not to look at you, let alone you look at him. But they do it anyway, because they don't really know. They just don't know who God is. Or they don't know who Jesus' father is. Jesus' response shows who knows and does not know the father. His response helps us to understand who knows and does not know the father. To see Jesus is to see the Father. And Jesus says this more than once throughout the Gospel of John. And by recognizing Jesus, they could not recognize the Father, showing how much they did not really know God. What a pitiful state. Men who were so good at knowing God's law that they actually could amend the law, didn't know who he was. How does that even happen? How does a person know the word so well but have no knowledge of the one who gave it? How does a person study the life of Jesus but still not know who he is? John answers that question for us too. When Jesus says, only those to whom my Father reveals it can know it. And he says it explicitly when Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ at Caesarea Philippi. Sometimes I think that the most pitiful thing about the Pharisees is that They just never saw it. They knew everything, but knew nothing. In that state, the uneducated fishermen were so much better off than the Pharisees. They knew nothing, but they knew everything. They knew nothing, but they knew the one who was everything. And then lastly here in verse 20, John just drops this little nugget into his narrative about Jesus was saying all these things at the temple treasury. Remember I've said there's no such thing as just superfluous words in Scripture that everything has a reason for being there. You would look at that and go, okay, so that's, okay, great, thanks. Okay, so they were at the temple. He says this in front of the treasury, okay. No, 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 it's not okay. He says it for a very important reason. 
This structure, the treasury, was located in the court of the women in the temple. Therefore, because it was in the court of women, Jesus is teaching and everything he's saying in those moments when he talks about being the river of life and the light of the world, it's accessible to everyone because he's saying it in the court of women. He's not inside the holy place where nobody but the priest can go saying these things. He's not in the court of men saying it where just the guys can hear it. No, he's out in the court of women where everybody can hear it. Men, women, and children. Everybody hears him saying these things. He's making it accessible to everyone. He's not hiding who he is from anyone. This location also tells us that it was the very place where the light ceremony had been celebrated all week, emphasizing the I am the light of the world statement that Jesus makes in verse 12. Oh, and one other little piece is the location adds emphasis to John's statement that Jesus was not arrested because it was not his hour. You you see, the temple treasury was very close to the hall where the Sanhedrin met, just yards away. He's literally on the Sanhedrin's doorstep saying these things in front of God and everybody, yet they could not arrest him. Now, if you remember at the beginning of chapter 7, they're fussing at the temple guards because they didn't go and arrest Jesus like they told them to. And their response was, we've never heard anyone teach like this. And then they fly off the handle and go on a tirade. But here they are themselves standing right in front of Jesus with him teaching right on their doorstep. And they don't arrest him. They couldn't do it either. After fussing and going on a tirade and berating, if you remember, they accused the temple guards who were also priests and members of the priestly family, well-trained in the law to begin with before they could ever serve on the temple guard. They'd accused them of being uneducated fools like the rest of the crowd. I mean, really? You're going to look into the face of a guy who has a PhD in astrophysics and tell him he's just an idiot about how stars form? Really? And after having made fools of themselves by berating the temple guard for not arresting Jesus, here they are standing right in front of him with him on their doorstep and they don't arrest him either. They don't do nothing. And John says it's because it was not his hour. It was not the time that the father had appointed for Jesus to be subjected to their hatred. That was an hour yet to come. But in that moment, his authority and our Father's sovereignty over all things even prevented the Pharisees from arresting him. Okay, great. Thank you so much for this wonderful lesson in Hebrew temple history and Pharisaical law and rabbinical traditions. And how to handle confrontational people. Thank you so much for all those wonderful tidbits, but so what? I got to go home and pay bills this afternoon. So what? Knowing where you and I are from is not as important as knowing who we are. Who are you? Who are you? And more importantly, 
Who are you in Christ? Who are you in Christ? What is your identity in our Savior, in Christ? That's a week's worth of thought and meditation. Secondly, we are witnesses to Jesus' lordship and salvation. Now, in this day, in this morning, in this hour even, now in the power of the Holy Spirit, we add our own testimony of who Jesus is. We become an additional witness for Jesus to that of his own words, the Father's testimony, Scripture's testimony, John the Baptist's testimony, the testimony of Jesus' own works, the testimony of the apostles, and all the saints who have gone before us. We add our testimony to that as well of who Jesus is. Is our testimony of Jesus important? I mean, really, does my testimony of who Jesus is matter that much when you've got John and Peter telling you who Jesus is? Or you have Martin Luther or Charles Spurgeon or John MacArthur? I mean, really, what's what's the big deal about adding mine to it? What's the big deal about adding yours to it? Is it really that important? Church history may not record that our testimony of Jesus is that important, like it did to these individuals I've mentioned. But there's a strange thing. It's just an odd occurrence that seems to be a repeating pattern in our Christian life. That when we interact with the people that we know, the testimony of the saints, the testimony of history, of church history and of scripture has an impact on whether or not they think Jesus is who we say he is. But for the people that we know, that we are telling the story of who Jesus is, it's our testimony that really gets their attention. We're a flesh and blood standing right in front of them. In most of the cases, most of the time, they've known us for some period of time and have some idea about who we are and what we're like. Whereas all the witnesses of testimony and the other, they're, they're almost abstract. They're not as real because they don't know those persons. They don't deny necessarily that, that the story of their testimony is true or not true. It's just, I don't really know that person. I kind of get it, but I don't, I don't get it. You I know. I can tell you're different than you were when we were growing up. I can tell you're different today than you were five years ago. Why are you different? Why are you able to sit here in these meetings at work and listen to this stuff they say to us and not just go crazy and fly off the handle? How can you do that? How do you do that? That's why our testimony matters. Because it's real and most real to the persons that know us. So as if the question of what is your identity in Christ not enough for you to meditate on this week, what is your testimony of Jesus? What are you a witness for concerning Jesus' identity? Who do you say he is? Who do you say Jesus is? And the answer to that question is the difference between 
eternity with him and eternity without him. It's the difference between rivers of living water and a dry desert. It's the difference between life and death. It's the difference between joy and despair. Who do you say Jesus is? At the expense of going over, I'll just tell you my testimony of Jesus is that he is the Son of God. He is the one who came and bled and died to redeem me from my sins and from all the consequences that came with them. I've screwed up so much and Jesus just keeps redeeming. Every week, Sometimes I really wish I'd never become a pastor because I was actually happily content to not realize how often I needed to be redeemed each week. But then becoming a pastor, it certainly starts getting in your face every week. You need to be redeemed today. You need to be redeemed this hour. Oh, you need to be redeemed this minute. Can I at least go 30 seconds without needing to be redeemed? Can I just have 30 seconds without needing to be redeemed? Please, come on, just 30 seconds. Nope, can't even have 30 seconds because you need to be redeemed. But you don't need to be redeemed because you're so bad. You need to be redeemed because you're worth being redeemed every 30 seconds to me. That's my testimony of who Jesus is. You and I are worth so much to him that he's willing to redeem us every 30 seconds. That's a pretty good Jesus. That's a pretty good Savior. That's a Savior worth believing in. That's a Savior worth living for. You know how I love to quote Clint Eastwood movies. The outlaw Josie Wells. Dying's easy. Living is hard. Dying a sinful death is easy. But living for Jesus, that's hard but it's a heart that's worth it. And that's my, that's my encouragement and admonition to you, brothers and sisters, is let him redeem you every 30 seconds and persevere in living for him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you so much for loving us this much. Thank you for redeeming us every day for redeeming us from our failures redeeming us from our brokenness redeeming us from living for ourselves when we could have just been living in you but thank you most of all father for redeeming us in our identity of who we are we are your children joint heirs with jesus by the blood of Jesus and the love of God and the faith in Christ. Lord, thank you so much for that. In Jesus' name, amen.